Hello and welcome to Passion and Practicality, a podcast series where the faculty, staff, and guests of Southern New Hampshire University's liberal arts programs discuss the career paths open to graduates of those programs, the research and creative work of practitioners in those fields, and whatever other interesting stuff comes our way. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean for Liberal Arts for Southern New Hampshire University's online history programs. In recent episodes, I have been broadening the scope of my conversations with academics and professionals a bit to look at different fields within what academics like to call the liberal arts. For our purposes, liberal arts includes history, but also different fields like communication, graphic design, graphic arts, philosophy, creative writing, literature, English, and a few others. Over the last year, I've talked to a bunch of interesting people affiliated with those fields, and I'm going to share the recordings of those conversations here. I looked for people outside of academia who can talk about the importance of the liberal arts in the business world. I looked for entrepreneurs, CEOs, and business owners. The resulting conversations range a bit across different topics, but I tried to find answers to some core questions that apply across the liberal arts that matter to students in those programs and to alumni who hold those degrees. Those questions include, why are students with liberal arts degrees valuable to employers? What can students in liberal arts programs do to make themselves more valuable or marketable to employers? And why do the liberal arts matter to you and to our modern culture? Today, I'm talking to Jeremy Flagg, a graphic designer, writer, high school teacher, comic book fan, and instructor for Southern New Hampshire University's Creative Writing MFA program. Here, we will discuss Jeremy's professional background, the business of graphic design, the skills necessary for success in a variety of careers, the value of risk-taking, and the importance of the liberal arts in general. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Jeremy Flagg, and I am an online professor at Southern New Hampshire University and an uh, in-person uh, teacher for a secondary education. Great, and I think we'll probably come back and talk about your uh, the careers there in a little bit. But before we do, can you tell us a little bit about your academic and professional background? Um, so originally when I was going for my undergrad, I was focused in art with a concentration in graphic design. And when we got to my final term at Salem State, we had to uh, prepare to pitch to um, graphic design companies for the hope of an internship. And I had a complete and utter freak out and realized that being in a cubicle just wasn't for me. And so my last semester, I wound up taking uh, some really fun elementary education courses, and I realized that I could speak about uh, graphic design all day long and uh, get paid for it while teaching it, and I got a, a much more versatile uh, work atmosphere with that. And so, uh, truly down to the last minute, I decided to pivot my career a little bit. And instead of going into corporate graphic design, I wound up going into graphic design education. Um, and then in the in the back burner of how I eventually got to Southern New Hampshire, I have always been a writer. I've always loved writing since I was really young. Um, I fell in love with comic books. And so I started writing as kind of a hobby and I put up my first book online uh, for purchase. And when I realized people were buying it, I suddenly thought like, this might be something I'd like to do uh, more seriously. And while I was uh, 
also teaching graphic design at the college level, I ultimately decided it would be nice to get some more experience with writing after publishing countless books. I uh, started looking for um, university positions specifically for writing. And ultimately I wound up at Southern New Hampshire as a uh, professor in the uh, master's program for creative writing. All right. And as a recovering comic book nerd, I've got to ask, which comic books were you a big, the, the biggest fan of? Uh, it, it's always going to be X-Men, no matter what. It will always ah, be X-Men. The Claremont years? Oh, absolutely. I yeah. I just did a podcast all about Claremont. <laughs> Is that an actual podcast? Yeah, I, uh, I, I host a, a podcast called Geekorama, and... If I can drop Chris Claremont in a conversation, I'm going to do it every chance I get. Oh, God. Yeah. You need to send me that link. I did not know that existed. And I have to, I now have to listen to that. <laughs> yeah. Cool. It, it, it's a good time. It kind of marries it because I write superheroes um, in my books. So it, it brings up that love of comics. It brings in the writing. It brings in the graphic design. It's kind of this beautiful, harmonious spot where all of my passions overlap. So you're teaching public school, you're teaching at the university level, you're writing books. Um, the, the high school that you're teaching, is that public or private? Uh, public. Um, I'm, I'm in a specialty program within the high school that is uh, considered vocational. So they, they take normal classes just like any other public high school. Um, I just have to operate under uh, federal guidelines as if I'm part of a voc school. So um, we still have to get involved with industry expectations and bring in industry professionals into our curriculum. So in that regard, it's a little bit more like um, an advisory committee at a university level. Uh, that's that's interesting. I, I um, Obviously, I didn't go to a vocational school in high school, but that's really interesting to hear that they have that kind of a setup. I think that's great. Um, how does the training that comes out of the high school like from a professional perspective, the training that comes in graphic design that comes out of a high school, how does that compare to, obviously it's going to be probably a lower level than at a university level, but from an employer perspective or from a kind of a general perspective, do you see a lot of, there's some similarities there, or do you think that the high school is going to require additional training or do they usually get enough out of high school that they can still be successful? So what I try to emphasize to my students is anyone can learn Photoshop. Anyone can learn Illustrator. We're not we're not concerned with technology, which is unfortunate because I'm in a technology engineering department. Um, but what I try to explain to them is I used to have my own design firm. And when I thought maybe I wanted out of education, I started building up my own business. And what I realized is as I was interviewing inter uh, employees, I didn't care if they had the skills with the technology. I can teach that. I can I can give you a book and a week later, you could come back as a Photoshop expert. But what I realized is their process of thinking was the most important thing. And you can't teach creativity. You can't teach um, the lack of inhibition in design thinking. And so what I really try to instill at the high school level is you need to be prepared to fail often because you will fail 99% of the time but you only need to come up with that 1% in front of your client. And when you get that 1%, you have an idea that's going to move forward and, you know, pay your bills. 
So right now at the high school level, I really emphasize uh, design thinking and the mentality that goes into creativity more than the technology. And it frustrates the students a lot because I force them very often to work in their sketchbooks before they get to a computer. And I have to explain to them that a computer is nothing more than a really complicated pencil. And if you don't have the idea when you pick up the pencil, the pencil is not going to do it for you. And once they start to understand that a computer is a tool and not a, uh, a generator of creativity, they start to realize that their personal perspective in the universe and their own views of creativity are what are most marketable and not their skill level. Um, and some some buy into this very, very quickly, and those students will go very far. The students who are very reluctant and really crave that technological piece, I find that they're the ones that struggle the most when it comes to success in design. Um, and they're, those type of people are more destined for programming or more technical aspects of the design world. Um, so, my class kind of rides that fine line between those tech savvy students and those creative uh, generators, I keep calling them. Um, so at the high school level, I teach 14 through 19 year olds. And sometimes the 14 year olds are the best students in the class because they don't have that, that fixation yet. Um, there's, we haven't beaten the love of learning out of them yet. Um, so they still need more training, but most often their employers will offer them some sort of training to get them ready. Every design firm wants things done their way. So as long as you can come into the, the process with fresh, innovative ideas, I can take a week and train you. So, and that is very hard for them to understand. They think that they need to have all those skills before they even show up to an employer. So it, it's trying to retool the thinking that basically every other area of education is telling them is wrong. So it is a little bit difficult, um, but we also have an emphasis that the students coming out of our program might not be destined for higher education. So I want to make sure that they're comfortable applying to creative positions just in case, you know, maybe they're going to go into a family business, but they can still take some of that creative uh, energy and create the brochures for their business, the business cards, the website. Um, and they're, they're young. They're in a generation where YouTube can answer technical questions for them, um, but YouTube can't tell them how to be creative. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's true for graphic design. It's true a lot because, like you say, with YouTube and with any, I mean, really this applies to any kind of artistic field, I suppose, but we, the audience, we only see the final product. And so we can see, yeah, if it's a YouTube video that's got all, you know, the flashy, it's got some really good, great editing, it's got really great design, great graphics, that we can see all that stuff as the final product. And so it's easy for us to say, oh, I have to master the technological part of it, because we don't see all of the the work that went on behind the scenes with sketchbooks, as you say, and with pen and pencil and, and with just sitting there staring out a window thinking. We don't see all that 
that kind of creation and development part of it, we just see the final project. And I can imagine, especially for younger um, graphic designers or wannabe graphic designers, it's hard to kind of keep that in mind that you're only seeing the last stage of this. You're not seeing the 30 or 40 stages that went into it before you got to that part. Um, and, and that's extremely true. I try to explain to them that uh, when the Twitter logo um, got remade or the Walmart logo or the Starbucks logo got remade, um, those are multi-million dollar logos. The Twitter logo, I believe, was $3.7 million that went into it. And if you looked at the differences between them, there are, you know, I, I can probably count four um, noticeable differences that would take any of my students about five minutes to generate on a computer. And they wonder why was that so much money? But when they start hearing about the focus groups and the conferences and the color psychologists that came in and the ongoing meetings of explaining the rationale behind it, they start to see um, how complicated that is. Um, and the most notorious case of this in all of graphic design is still um, a woman named Paula Cher came up with the new Citibank logo and she did it while she was having the meeting with the, um, over lunch, she drew it on a napkin and that ultimately was the logo that went to press and became the well-known Citibank umbrella logo. And everyone thinks, well, she just did it on a napkin. So, you know, why did she make hundreds of thousands of dollars? Well, just because she made it on that napkin, she spent the next two years fighting for it through, um, stakeholder meetings, board meetings, focus groups through psychologists. And just because you came up with this amazing idea, now there's the business of design behind it. And so students tend to have difficulty understanding that being creative isn't the end all and neither is the business side. There's a, a happy marriage between them. And that is the aspect that I think, um, at least at the secondary level, that we can focus on one and expose to the other, but we'll never get both of them in the short amount of time we have them. Yeah. You're, when you were saying that, that made me think of um, every now and then, you know, you'll see like memes pa passing around on Twitter or Facebook or something where they'll point out corporate logos and say, Oh, isn't that interesting. And so there are things like the arrow hidden in the FedEx logo or the A to Z on the Amazon logo. And people are like, Oh, isn't that cute? And it's like, well, that's not coincidental. That's something that, they probably spent years working on and, and umpteen focus groups and, and uh, budgeting and all of that that went into that. And so it is always interesting to kind of see that, you know, this it is easy for us on the outside to think, oh, yeah, like you were saying with the with the Citibank logo. Well, that's a quick thing. I mean, anybody could do that. But the reality is that, no, there's actually a whole lot of work that goes into that. And it was one of my 14 year old students that pointed out when you see the FedEx logo on the truck the arrow points backwards. Huh? Yeah. So the place that we see this logo most prevalent as we're driving around on the interstate is pointing the wrong direction, which <laughs> I, I, will, I will give that 14 year old deserves an award for pointing out something that I am sure hundreds, if not thousands of people didn't make a connection to. Yeah. I never made that connection. <laughs> I told him I would hire him in a heartbeat. Yeah. Well, right. That's the kind of thing that we need as graphic designers, because they're the ones that are going to notice those little things. Because from what I've seen, I mean, the success in things like graphic design and, and 
most creative fields is that you need to have the creativity, but there also has to be the attention to detail to pick up on that type of thing and to, because the, the little details are what's going to make the experience work. And that's, that requires a focus, a creativity and a focus that uh, we may not always think about. And I'll be the first one to say, I, I'm, I'm great with the ideas and the generation. It's that attention of detail to why I don't have my firm anymore. I just, little things <laughs> getting through and the, the uh, minutia of every design. I just want to be the dude who spins around in an office chair and just comes up with these grand ideas and let someone else <laughs> run with them. Right. So when you owned the the firm and a bit just kind of stepping back and kind of you as a, you know, as a manager or a potential supervisor or a potential employer, um, sounds like the types of things that you're looking for in potential applicants, of course, are going to be creativity, attention to detail. What other types of, of skills and characteristics are you, would you be looking for uh, for a successful hire? The probably the number one skill that I would ask for any employee coming into my work environment is the ability to handle and process feedback in almost a bizarre, emotionally detached manner. And not I, I, I want people who are super passionate and super, super into what they're doing, but at some point, uh, you know, as the, as the manager, as the art director for um, any product moving forward, at some point, the client's going to come in and say no. And you might have to, you know, fight as much as you can, but you might ultimately lose that fight and to go back to that person and say, Hey, you know, that was a great idea, but it's going in the trash now because it's over. Um, And people who could just go, okay, so what's next? And just roll with that um, there's a certain amount of uh, emotional maturity that needs to happen and the ability for people to see uh, a, a very strong division between their output and their self-worth. Um, mm-hmm. And that that is something that was incredibly difficult. And I, I made some bad choices with employees because they were extremely passionate and they got really behind their work. But when they were told no, Sometimes they would say, well, I don't accept that. Well, I write your check. You do accept that. Or (laughs) the client is going to pull the contract. You are being let go. Sorry. Um, And that was probably one of the most difficult things. And those extremely passionate people can be extremely passionate, but that life and that vigor don't translate onto a sheet of paper with this final product. So um, along with that ability to separate themselves from their output is the ability to communicate their thoughts in a way that uh, show their um, emotional involvement without it turning into, you know, crying. And there are definitely times where I would put out what I thought were fantastic designs and, the client would come back to me and say things like, this isn't at all what we asked for. And in the back of my head, I'm thinking, this is exactly what you asked for. You actually railroaded this to happen. And then you get berated um, and you have to realize that this isn't a personal thing. It's a business thing. And sometimes I, you know, I would come back and I would very staunchly tell them you're wrong. 
Um, we're going to do this the correct way, not your way. And some clients really responded to that and appreciated it. But other times I got fired. Um, and you know, if, if we don't have the income to keep everyone employed, eventually we have to lay people off. And so there's always that fine line between, um, being, you know, recklessly creative and being corporate minded and the people who understood that, uh, personal balance are the ones who I, I was amazed at how masterful they could navigate a situation. Um, they could see that a client might not be as, as into something as they are. And now it's time for them to dial down their emotion and start giving practical feedback as to why this might go. Or maybe the client was low energy and by the designer speaking it up and really getting excited about it, they could see this vision. And so um, being able to control your emotions is probably one of the biggest things. Being able to communicate your emotions um, is another big thing. And I would probably even say being able to be very empathic to the people that you're working with, um, which is something I'm not great with because ultimately at the end of the day, I'm right and everyone else is wrong. <laughs> And clients don't seem to always appreciate that mentality. <laughs> I bet. Um, and and now that I, I, I only design freelance and I only take the clients that I get excited about. And the reason I can do this now is because I'm working in education. And I, I always explain to my students, I fire more clients than I take on because they wanted to either be difficult, they, they didn't know what they wanted, and I didn't feel passionate enough to want to solve it for them. Um, so now I get the luxury of if I see something and ideas start to come right away, like I'll go pursue them, but I, I can do it more on my terms. And what I've learned as I've gotten older is I really like my way of doing things. <laughs> it, that takes time, effort, and a very secure day job to be able to pull that off. Yeah, th that must be, I, I can certainly see why having the day job would be, would help with that because yeah, you're not dependent on it for your, for all your income. And so you can, you gives you kind of the space to be able to approve and deny uh, projects and all of that. So how do you, how do you balance your, your, your energy there? Cause I know that I can imagine teaching high schoolers would be, I mean, as, as a college instructor, high school, I mean, K through 12 has always sounded exhausting to me. I know that college is exhausting in its own way, but how do you, how do you find the time to, if you're teaching for SNHU and teaching high school, where do you find the time to do all this uh, graphic design work? I haven't taken on an outside client in probably a year. Um, I'm really good about working without sleep. And what I realized is <laughs> eventually I had to come up with healthier ways of doing things. And with uh, writing actually being the third, you know, my third job, the the design work is uh, spec work only. I only do it if um, if there's a need for it. I occasionally will do some book jacket covers for people or uh, interior book formats and things that aren't taxing on time because time right now is unfor unfortunately there isn't a dollar amount. Um, high enough to uh, purchase what free time I do have. And 
once I realized the value of, you know, my own time and started realizing like eventually something has to give. So um, I get to talk all day about design. I get to instill my experience um, in my day job. I get to write when I get home and then I get to uh, distill that experience with college students. So right now I'm in the happy balance um, and to upset that balance, it's got, it's going to have to be a really good reason to upset it. Yeah. I think that's an important step in a person's career is when you realize that there is a dollar value that's attached to your time because you are a professional and you are entitled to getting paid for your work. And so there comes a point where people kind of have to realize, like you said, at some point, there just is no amount that you could be paid to use up what little time you have. Uh, maybe there is an amount that will, but maybe there isn't. And I think that's always an important step in someone's career development. It's realizing that, you know, I make such and such dollars per hour. And so it makes sense that if I'm going to take on extra work, then I should be paid, you know, at least that amount to make it worth my time. And that's, that's, that's an important stage. And I, and I, I've gotten to the point where I look at, um, every financial endeavor, what, what will it award me? Because I try to, especially with my younger students, I try to explain to them, um, when your buddy comes up and asks you, Hey, I know you know how to make an album cover. Would you be willing to do it for me? Your first words out of your mouth are going to be, how much are you paying? And if it doesn't have a dollar amount, then the answer is no. Um, and so now that I've gotten older and, you know, actually require sleep once in a while, I have to say like, Hey, you know, that class that I'm going to teach at uh, Southern New Hampshire, that's going to actually award me a, a two week vacation somewhere come summertime. Um, and so it's almost like by doing this, there's a reward involved. Um, you know, there's the, the mental engagement of actually doing these projects, but at the end, there's also this, you know, there's ice cream at the end of this project. <laughs> um, and so I, I've, I've gotten really good with playing this game of bribery with my motivation. What you were saying there made me think of all the other kind of memes that go around in um, social media, especially among art artistic folks about the whole joke about it getting paid in exposure versus oh. getting paid in money. <laughs> and so I know that that is a huge issue, especially in the artistic community. It's still prevalent today. I, I, I always, my, my grade students, my secondary uh, students really find it uh, bizarre that I will write my, my teacher salary up on the board so they can see how much money I make. Um, it's all public knowledge. They can go fish that off the website if they really want. And by putting a dollar amount up there and starting to break down what my workday looks like, they see that I'm getting paid so much time for what I'm doing. And then I say, okay, well now let's go look at this from my graphic design business. I could be working twice as many hours be commuting more, be in meetings more, and I'm making roughly the same amount of money. And, oh, yeah, now I have to also pay um, self-employed insurance. Well, now you're watching these dollar amounts go down. And when they start to realize that, oh, by charging, you know, $50 an hour, $75, $100, whatever, that sounds like a really big number at the beginning, but 
when tax time comes around, that's not as big a number as you originally thought. Um, and so giving them this like uh, reality perspective, I think allows them to understand that design and art included with this um, does have a financial value. And I think seeing dollar amounts dropped left and right, they start to realize like, oh, minimum wage is not a viable option when it comes to this. And I think they're going to come into um, out of this whole craziness that we're in right now. I think they're going to start to see, well, what were you doing in all that free time? Oh, that's right. You were binging music, TV, movies, and video games. And who are the people who make that happen? So I think the the importance of the arts in general i i think is going to get a little bit of a bolster out of this this turbulent time yeah i hope so um because i think it's i think it's it's time i mean we, there there's been so much thinking in especially among consumers that everything should be available online everything should be free online and so i think or i i hope and I kind of agree with you that that may be one of the consequences of this um, pandemic uh, life that we're in <laughs> is well, that uh, we, we do depend on people to create that stuff or else things could be much more boring sitting around the house all day. So I, I kind of knew this was coming about a month before I, I have friends in the medical field who are like, yeah, you need to start preparing now. And so I, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, Maine and, you know, survival is just what we do. So I came into this completely, I, you know, I barely touched the reserves in my freezer. And then I started thinking about it from a business perspective. Well, I have a zombie apocalypse series. I wonder what would happen if I made the first book free and I did absolutely nothing to market it. And wow, I, uh, I made a lot of money on a free book because Kindle Unlimited people started buying it. Well, then there was a buy through to books two and three. I did no work whatsoever, and I'm going to get a pretty nice paycheck out of this this project that people just wanted someone who saw the apocalypse and poked fun at it. And well, what do you know? I happened to write that. So I think it's really awesome that you're teaching your students about kind of the nuts and bolts financial aspects to graphic design, because I think that tends to get overlooked a lot in uh, in a lot of graphic design programs, because we naturally, we kind of want to focus on the creativity aspect of it, uh, sometimes the technical aspect of it, basically, how do you become a good graphic designer? But there hasn't really been as much discussion in liberal arts courses, the coursework itself on how to market that stuff and how to pay the bills and how to, um, you know, determine your, your value and your worth and all of that. So that's, that's really cool that you're doing that. And I think that's something that probably could be done on a much broader level, uh, whether we're talking to SNHU or, you, you know, the academia in general, I think there could be more focus on the, the bottom line business aspects of it. And I think it might be worth students pursuing that maybe outside of their normal graphic design coursework or history coursework or English coursework, whatever it is, whatever liberal arts field they're in, I think there is value in pursuing some of that stuff that's often the business realm or even maybe in the STEM realm or wherever that may happen to be. Well, my, um, my, 
my graduate work is actually from Savannah College of Art and Design, and their their tagline is the business of art. And when I had an experience, like I went went to Savannah, I applied for the program, and they were so adamant about making sure that you left their program with marketable skills that it it really dawned on me that my undergraduate, well, it it definitely prepared me to be a graphic designer. I didn't even know how to write a resume at that point. And here I am, I graduated when I was 26 and my resumes were to work at, you know, borders or um, chain stores. And so that really kind of struck home with, wow, I I need to know the business side of this. And I've always been, um, I would like to say business savvy, but in reality, it was probably just, you know, what I saw on TV. Um, and I think that this is really important for anyone who goes into any sort of liberal arts degree. Um, and, you know, people, people will mock this, like the, uh, the poor, poor English literature majors. Um, what is your business going to be at the end of this? Like what, you can absolutely go to school for the love of education and by all means, please do. I think that that's extremely valuable um, in society as a whole. But at at some point, you're going to need to also pay the bills. So is there a way to marry this? And even with the graduate program at Southern New Hampshire, um, I always like to, in the discussion section, I always like to open up questions for industry chat. And this is just, people can ask whatever question comes across their mind. And in the past, it's been, you know, I'm really nervous about getting into the publishing game because, you know, when was the last time a, a, an author actually made noticeable money and what's the likelihood of making more than minimum wage as an author? And those are all extremely valid concerns and this underlying fear that you're doing something that you love, but it will never be more than a hobby. Um, and so originally my, my first series is all self-published just because I, I didn't know what I was doing. So I just clicked the publish button and then I ultimately got picked up by a publisher. And what I realized was my business model and my work ethic far exceeded my publisher. And I actually wound up, uh, severing ties with them and regaining my rights so that I could go back and remarket my books as the way they should have been. And I've seen, you know, this definite uptick in my sales and I've seen my reviews are much better. And I think students in liberal arts are sometimes scared to ask about the paycheck or the business or how will I, you know, pay for my kids uh, braces or how will I send them to college if I decide to go into this particular field? And I think having those honest conversations are something that's extremely important because truth is realistically, if you're not a a diehard marketer, then maybe self-publishing isn't for you. And that's not a bad thing. It just means that you might have to take a different Avenue. And, um, that's one of the things that I've loved about working at SNU is, they have been really great about keeping a broad conversation going um, and not uh, really drilling home up. This is the right way to do something. 
Um, and that really spoke out to me. And that's ultimately why I applied there because um, it, it just, it made more sense that one path isn't the right path for everybody. So we've talked a bit about this in kind of in general throughout this conversation here, but you know, wh- why is the liberal arts important to you? Ooh. Why, why do the liberal arts matter? Why should people, why, why should we be recommending people to take liberal arts programs? Why should, why should we be pushing, uh, you know, English literature or communications or history or this, this type of thing? Why, why, why bother with all of this stuff? So when I, my first secondary job, when I, I graduated with my undergrad, I, I had about a month of downtime and then I started right in teaching high school. And one of the things I, I wound up teaching at a very affluent community um, that had more than enough budget to keep the arts going, but the arts were always under fire. And still to this day, they're the first thing to get dropped off in elementary school programs. Um, and so we always had to justify our existence. And I always found that conversation to be super odd because I, I can't imagine a world that doesn't have the arts in it. And this goes, and I'm speaking a very broad term of arts from literature to history, to visual, to everything. We could be a society of robots and we could keep things going at a very sterile way. But the thing that we always said when we had to justify in front of school committee, in front of the principal, the superintendent. Um, we always said that our arts program helps students deal with today, prepare for tomorrow, and look at the world in a way that otherwise wouldn't be looked at. And this goes for anything. If you think about how people innovate, at some point, someone had to stop and ask a question about something's not right in the world. And how can I make it better? And this is a a question that, you know, people in all of their uh, independent domains have thought about. And um, I always like to think back, I I took um, my World Civ 1 and 2 class at my undergrad. My World Civ 1 class was probably the most wretched class I have ever taken in my life. And I painstakingly read a 600-page book and memorized everything that didn't matter to me whatsoever. And then I held off taking World Civ II for as long as possible. And ultimately, I got stuck with um, a much older teacher. And I was a little bit nervous because I I was worried that she was just going to use an old model. And she started talking about a clay pot she found. and. I thought, well, this is the weirdest conversation I've ever walked into. (laughs) And she, come to find out, she has worked most of her life as an archaeologist, and her specialty is in um, early civilization pottery. And all of a sudden, this got my attention because I was taking a pottery class at the time. And when she started explaining how uh, the curvature of the pot was because of the depth of the water or how long the the women had to carry these pots to get from a water source to their their homes and how they were sealed and constructed depending on the heat and 
the the needs of their culture and all of a sudden it started to really dawn on me that oh if if i look at the world with this particular lens on all of a sudden these things became far more interesting um and now that's kind of how i go through life and I, I went to school for art, so I see the world in these very artistic terms. And I think it's just a, for me, the most interesting way to look at it. And I think for someone who is uh, very into uh, history, they can look at the world around them and say, um, you know, in where I live right now, there's a massive dam. And well, why does this dam exist? Well, historically speaking, this dam was used for uh, controlling the water source for Boston and it's their drinking water. And why do they use this drinking water? Because, well, the water in Boston once upon a time was tainted and it killed people. And I think once you start to uh, go into this area and you start to explore it and start to look at it with a worldview, um, the world becomes a much different place. And there's not a lot of people that are looking at the world that the way you do. And I think that that's where innovation comes from. And that's where um, advancements across the board happen. And I think we need more people who are willing to look at the world in these different ways to see the inequities and see the potential. And, and I think that that's something the liberal arts do. I, um, I, I love the sciences. Thank God someone out there is doing them. But they they follow a certain formula. And I always wonder if in a scientific community, if you put an artist in there, would that artist somehow look at it differently and bring up uh, things that other people hadn't thought about? And so I think that that's where um, the arts become so useful. and for a long time in business, the perk of having an artist on your staff was they become the leaders of your think tank because they're just going to ask weird questions. And some of, again, 99% of those questions are going to be trash, but it only takes that one and you can create an entire business model around that. And for a long time, businesses were um, this idea of bringing people together and having these um think tank type meetings where everyone would pitch out and artists have no problem pitching ideas left and right and being told we're wrong. We're, we're more than happy to be wrong all the time. Um, and I think that that is useful. And so even though you might be going into a world of finance or business, having that liberal art background gives you a perspective that all these business majors don't have. And it gives you that, um, fresh perspective. And if you market it correctly, it could be your strongest asset when going into the business world. And I think that that is ultimately the, the importance in, you know, on top of that, from a just cultural point of view, without the arts of any kind, it would just be sterile. It would be boring. So, you know, thank you artists and those who go out and create for giving me something to do when I'm at home all day, every day. <laughs> all right. Well, that was very well put. Thank you. And um, are there any last thoughts that you think would be worth sharing with the audience? 
Um, I think my my biggest risk, my my biggest suggestion would be for people to take risks. And I, I watch this with secondary students, and I'm sure to some degree it applies to higher education as well. But students are always being told what they should do. And I think a lot of the time their paths get beaten out for them um, or, or they're given an option of least resistance. And we have taught students to fear failure. And I always like to start out and explain that I originally went to school for computer science. I took two years of hardcore computer programming. I can write in three languages now. And I hated every minute of it. And I know <laughs> if I had stuck with it, I could be making two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars a year, but I would have been miserable. And so I wound up dropping out of school, much to my parents' dismay. And I toured the East Coast, also to their dismay. And I wound up going to a school uh, almost 500 miles away, also to their dismay. And I wound up pursuing art. And up to this point, my parents had no idea that this was anything I was even interested in. I failed most of my art classes in high school. And so this came out of the blue. And I, to think that I, I took this bizarre chance on something that I might be interested in, um, it, it truly has impacted me in every aspect of my life at this point. And I may have taken the long route to get to some of these places, but I took uh, the road less traveled. And I really just encourage people to sit down and think, um, don't always let money be your guide. Don't ignore money, um, but weigh out your options. And sometimes that that scary thing that you, you think is a bad idea might actually wind up at the end of the day being the best thing you've ever done. So take risk and be willing to fail often. That is very good advice. So Jeremy, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. This episode appears on the Passion and Practicality podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or whatever else you prefer. For Jeremy Flagg and the entire liberal arts faculty and staff at SNHU, I'm Rob Denning. Take care now.